Hello, and welcome to the April 13th, 2021 episode of The Musical Universe of Professor Hurst. This is Craig W. Hurst, Emeritus Professor of Music, podcasting from my music bunker, along with my faithful canine companion, Carmel the Wonder Dog, to share with you my latest musical interests and discoveries. I claim no special inside information about the latest or greatest music, nor do I know everything there is to know about music. What I am is a lover of music. I enjoy several genres of music, and I share with you what has currently caught my interest, old, new, outdated, and everything in between. Even old music is brand new if you have never heard it before. The universe of music is a vast one to enjoy. From my discussions, you might find something new to you and of interest to expand your own musical universe. I currently receive no compensation or motivation of any kind from any recording label, recording artist, or estate of any performer or composer dead and gone to discuss their music and or recordings. Today is a landmark occasion. Today's episode marks the 25th episode of the musical universe of Professor Hurst. Doing this podcast has been a lot of fun, and I have connected with musical people all over the world. I would like to publicly thank my wife, Nancy, for encouraging me while I pursue this new hobby. And of course, a lot of thanks to my faithful canine companion, Carmel the Wonder Dog, for sitting quietly by my side while I record my episodes and not barking. Well, not too often anyway. Now with that out of the way, welcome to my musical universe. My guest today is Hope Dunbar. Through song, she transforms the mundane into the magical. We witnessed this alchemy four years ago when Dunbar released her first album, Three Black Crows. After growing up in Mission Viejo, California, and study abroad in Paraguay during high school, she attended Valparaiso University in Indiana. She met and married her husband there and moved with him to a small town in Iowa, where she started singing folk songs with a new friend at public libraries, farmers markets, and fairs. Before long, she was writing her own songs. A move to Nebraska provided the perfect quiet place to pen her tunes. Drawing from Simon and Garfunkel, the Indigo Girls, Patty Griffin, Nancy Griffith, Joni Mitchell, John Prine, 
Lori McKenna, and other inspirations, she developed a distinctive perspective, musically and lyrically. Her debut solo extended play, Woman Like Me, came out in 2013. In 2014, as a participant in the Real Women, Real Songs project, she wrote 52 songs, one per week. The following year, Dunbar recorded an extended play, The End of Wanting, and was a finalist at the Kerrville New Folk Festival. She took second place in American Songwriter Magazine's Lyrics Contest early in 2017 with her song, We Want. Three Black Crows followed later in 2017. She conceived its music during the hours when her husband and kids were at work and school, without any nearby singer-songwriter rounds or club dates or supportive community. When released in 2017, Three Black Crows inspired positive comparisons to Bruce Springsteen's Nebraska. One critic cited her references to dusty roads, endless fields, and massive starry skies, to which she adds layers of meaning through her visceral authenticity and raw honesty her incredible language and truth-telling. In the past, she has shared stages with Daryl Scott, Richard Schindel, and Tom Paxton, among others. Dunbar's emergence led to what she remembers now as a frenzy of activity. Her homebound days gave way to touring, interviews, radio appearances. Yet, as this door opened, another one closed, much to her alarm. I rocketed right into hitting a wall, Dunbar said. Things got so overwhelming because the hustle became more important than the artistry. Once the hoopla passed, she was able to come back home. She wound up on a new path of taking ownership of her musical journey. New songs poured forth, which she brought to Nashville for her second album, Sweetheart Land. With Zach Smith and Jesse Thompson sharing production with her, she led a carefully selected group of Nashville musicians on a journey through stories lifted from everyday routine and secret dreams. Her intention with Sweetheart Land was to walk in and say, I'm not asking your permission. I'm doing what I want to do. I am fully empowered and I am choosing to make this record. It would be wise for us to hear it too. All of us can draw from the wisdom and empathetic honesty of Sweetheart Land. Its message is both regional and, metaphorically at least, universal. It is my pleasure to welcome to my musical universe, Hope Dunbar.
Hello, Hope. Hi. It's really great to talk with you. Thank you so much for having me today. It's my pleasure to be here. I'm very happy to have you on my podcast and looking forward to our discussion today about your new album and about your music and creative process. So let's get right to talking about your new album, Sweetheart Land, which uh, released uh, earlier this month on April 2nd. In addition to listening to an advanced copy of Sweetheart Land, uh, I have also been listening a lot to your first album, Three Black Crows. And well, I, you know, I try to become familiar with my interview subjects. So I listen to your music, old, new and everything in between. Anyway, to my ears, Three Black Crows sounds more like a folk recording. Uh, and maybe it's only because of the foregrounding of the acoustic guitar or ukulele uh, accompaniment, or that the album kicks off with a tremendous ballad, which is, by the way, my favorite song on the album, Charlottetown. Thank you. Yeah, I just love it because it is in that nice traditional sort of folk ballad style. I love that, you know, so... I love that song. Well, Sweetheart Land, yeah. Sweetheart Land seems to me to be more of a full-on country and roots rock type of album. And your work is, is really wonderfully original. The title track brings to my mind, I hear, I hear Emmy Lou Harris, I hear Linda Ronstadt in that first song. And the second track. Uh, what you were thinking really made me think of Bruce Springsteen's Born to Run. It was very much kind of a similar, and I, you know, and I, I, I can sound real smart saying that because I know your work has been compared to Springsteen's album, mm-hmm. Nebraska. Right. Now, I know that in your bio, you have said that Sweetheartland represents the kind of music you want to do rather than what someone else wants you to do. So now here comes my question. Finally, was it your intention then to do an album that was more of a country rock album? Yes. Uh, The short answer is yes. Um, The long answer is um, when I wrote, when I did Three Black Crows, I was working from a couple of different assumptions and also limitations that I thought I couldn't overcome. So Back in 2017, when Three Black Crows came out, I was very squarely, it was very clear to me, I was a woman with a guitar. I was pretty much a artist who was touring solo. Like sometimes I had ensemble, but more often than not, I really was just a solo artist. And those two things really informed what I thought I could accomplish like stereophonically when making a studio record. I didn't want to stray too far away from what the live song would sound like. And I thought that that was kind of a responsibility I had as an artist. And so Three Black Crows, like if we had a template record we were working from, well, first, Bruce Springsteen's Nebraska is always, it's always playing in the back of my mind. He's a perpetual template which makes a lot of sense. Mm-hmm. But also um, Patty Griffin's Living With Ghosts, if you know that record, it's a pretty pared down vocal and guitar record. And Patty Griffin, we all know, is a pretty monster vocalist and she's got a pretty big sound, but in Living With Ghosts, she brought it way down. 
And that was kind of our understanding of where we would go audibly with, with like creating these songs. Sweetheart Land, you're exactly right. I wanted to make an intentional statement artistically in every way to say, actually, <laughs> I know I'm a solo touring artist. I also want to explore a bigger sound. I also want to allow myself to have the freedom of a stereo record and everything that's at my availability and I'm going to go for it. Mm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, and you do, I mean, you have things that you have on the new album that you don't have on the, on the three, three black crows, for example, like you use uh, you know, full band, but you also have background vocals and uh and a lot a lot of a thicker thicker texture more going on sure mm -hmm. than that uh just simple straightforward uh solo singer and a guitar although i will add i think you're wonderful in that in that arena as Thank well because uh, i i did include in my show notes so that my listeners that access my show notes uh a couple of your videos from uh uh nebraska net yeah of, of your performing just you and your guitar and uh and uh because i think that's just you know it's great in and to itself that's not to take anything away from the new album i'm just because that really leads me to my next question so then were these sounds that you created on sweetheart land was this something this was something then that was in the back of your mind for some time just wanting to come out or was this inspired by something else yeah, um, I think that I, I think that I was kind of, I think, uh, I want to sound cooler than I actually am. I'm just going to sound the way I sound. I wanted the Sweetheart Land to demonstrate an evolution of me as an artist. Ah. And I wanted that bigger sound. Now, now, granted, I didn't necessarily know how it was going to go down, you know, like I had these raw songs. I hope a listener sees thematical and artistic connections between this record and Three Black Crows, even though they are in very different musical universes. I hope you can still hear that same artist come out. But what I hope you hear is an evolution of that artist kind of expanding the palette, you know, like expanding the color wheel with which to play. And really when I came into this record, my thought was, it's not about me as a solo girl with a guitar. What's really important in this project is that the songs become what they were meant to become. Okay. And I think we accomplished that. Yeah, I, I think it's a beautiful album. So I was curious, you know, you worked with Zach Smith and mm -hmm. Jesse Thompson when yeah. you recorded in, in Nashville. So how much of this sound on the new album was influenced by these co-producers? like hugely i had been like zach smith was a friend of mine for a really long time he lives in a different musical universe than i do you know he kind of does rhythm and blues um just cool like cool rock and roll that i wish i could sound like and zach was a guy who has who was always in my mind like i want to work with him i can't explain it beyond that but i just want to and then zach brought jesse in and i really wanted those guys to bring their own interpretation, collaborate, hear what I could not hear. Because mm -hmm. there was still some, like there's a learning curve on this record and, and you can probably hear that too, is that I hadn't made a re 
I haven't made a record like this up until now. And so I needed two more brains in the room to hear things I couldn't hear. Cause that solo artist thing, it's awesome when it comes to like lyrics, nothing gets in the way of the songwriting. It's just me and a microphone and I get mm -hmm. to tell the story I want to tell. However, not being in an ensemble um, continuously means that what's missing in my education is hearing the full ensemble in my head. If you have experience, you know, working with uh, collaborating with other people, it starts to build into how you write and like how you perform. And I knew that that was something I couldn't bring to the table. And I wanted Zach and Jesse to bring that. And they did. Mm -hmm. They're awesome. So you kind of feel, do you feel like this would be an accurate statement then that what you brought to the studio was maybe the basic skeletal elements of the song. Uh, and then they fleshed it out. They put the meat on the bones, so to speak. Yeah. I mean, what they did was they heard what I brought as far as a songwriter was concerned. Mm -hmm. And they said, had you, have you ever thought about this? Like, have you ever, like, I know, like, here's what it sounds like now and then what if we did this or would it be cool and in pre-production the three of us got together ran through the proposed song list um together and they brought these stylistic ideas and said what if we dressed it up like this or what if we slowed it way down and tried it this way like they were an amazing resource when it came to interpreting what mm -hmm. i brought for with like chords and lyrics it was pretty mm -hmm. awesome very cool. Very cool. Yeah, really uh, cool. I mean, I think that's great to have that kind of a sounding board and someone yeah. who can say, well, have you thought about trying it this way? Or let's experiment and see if you like this better or, or not. I think that sounds like a great way to, uh, to flesh out your, your initial ideas. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, you know, one of the songs on your new album that I love is entitled A Woman Like Me. Oh, thank you. And uh, well, and it's and it's interesting. Wait till you hear why I love it. Oh, okay. Okay, because <laughs> I think it's a good reason. But but there's a re. I mean, being a man, why am I really loving a song entitled "A Woman Like Me"? All right. Yeah. Well, I first of all, I hear the song as being a very powerful statement about breaking stereotypes of women, mm. because you know, in the lyrics, you talk about you know how well how good you are at those sorts of things that we typically associate with children bearing and raising children or excuse me with women bearing and raising children and taking care of the home and blah 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 yet i still write these songs in mm. other words you're still despite whatever mundane if i can say that and i don't mean that in a pejorative sense mundane sort of things that we do to you know daily chop wood and carry water you still yeah. have this uh ability this this uh uh initiative to put these thoughts out there and create a song well the song not only to me broke stereotypes about women but it was uh for those of us, whether you're male or female, uh, it also seemed to break stereotypes for those of us who are not as young as we used to be. <laughs> and that's yeah. what I loved. 
because I thought, you know, there's a lot of other people that say, well, why don't you act your age? Well, I'll, I'll say, well, what does that mean? You know, how am I supposed to act at my age, you know? And, and so there's sometimes when, uh, you know, as I've gotten older, I still have questioned whether I could still bring it, whether I could still chew the leather, whether I can still be as viable as, yeah. as ever. And so maybe talk a bit for my listeners about your inspiration for a woman like me and, and kind of what it, what it means to you and might mean for others. Well, I think as a listener, Craig, you've kind of picked up on a lot of what was motivating me at, when I wrote it, right? Okay. Um, I really did want to write from a perspective of, of a mature woman. I don't think we have lots of, um, of women's voices in art who are coming from a place of married with kids. Um, I just don't think that we have enough of those stories out there. And I really wanted to honor that. I really wanted to reflect my own reality back and hope that there were, you know, kindred souls out there that needed to hear their place in life um, honored and memorialized. That was the first thought. You know, it's the second one really straightforward is um, I think at the time I, and like a lot of songs that I write, I was I was writing from an autobiographical point of view okay. and I was trying to express this feeling of stuckness, um, but that in the midst of such stuckness and um, like that word you said, mundane life, which I have lived a lot of that chop wood, carry water reality. I think most of us have, um, that there is real beauty and artistry and, and delicate, unforgettable moments if you're willing to let them be that. So it started out as an autobiography. And, and here's the thing is some people are like, that's the saddest song I've ever heard. And some people are, <laughs> and some people hear the song and are like, that song rules. And I've always mm -hmm. thought of it as actually like, I wrote it as a pep talk. Now, I guess I'm kind of a sad sack type of person. So maybe it's not the coolest <laughs> pep talk, mm -hmm. but that, empowering line a woman like me sings the prettiest songs for me is like a centering grounding message like mm -hmm. it might look like maybe i'm living for other people or it might look like my unglamorous life is nothing to be envied and yet i remain firmly rooted in this declaration i sing the prettiest songs mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and then as the song grew and i sat with it and i played it more and more i realized well first i realized yeah i did write this about me but you want to know what though <laughs> and and this is like an aha moment it's weird how when you create a piece of art like now the art talks back to you sometimes and it, it tells you things you didn't know that you were even saying and one of the thoughts i've had over the years as i've written it i'm so, sorry sung it and performed it is um, when you think about, and you'll know this because you're a music appreciation professor, um, but that we can ask a group of people who their favorite recording artists are. Like they can list Aretha Franklin, they can like list Chris Christopherson or Joni Mitchell or um, any of the big heavy hitters of, of music history, right? 
And yet none of those recording artists can possibly compare to the heart space that is taken up by the memory of the grandma singing the hymns at Christmas time on the family piano. Like none, none of those recording artists hold a candle to the memory of their mom singing while chopping vegetables. Mm-hmm. And those are the women who sing the prettiest songs. Like those women own like the music space in people's hearts in a way that no master monster artist could possibly hold. And, mm. and so it became a song about me. It also becomes a song about those women who gift their family and loved ones with that permission to sing their most beautiful song. Wow. You know, like while doing the mundane things of life. Wow. I never thought about thought about it, but the way you talk about it is you're absolutely right. And those family connections are yeah. so much stronger than anything you will ever get from, from I don't care who they are. I don't you're, care who you're they absolutely are. right. If you just think about that lullaby or that hymn that your grandma just sang and it comes on the radio unexpected, it can bring you to tears. Like it can just mm-hmm. pull you in and you feel it in every bone of your body, like every inch of skin. And it, it it's so powerful. And that's mm-hmm. what women are doing every day, all the time and holding babies and getting dinner ready and loading the dishwasher. <laughs> I'm chuckling only because you're you're talking about this. I just in my memory, I had a flashback to my mother, who anytime we used to be get in the car to go on a, you know, on a trip somewhere, she would sing the opening line to Willie Nelson's on the road again. (laughs) Exactly. <laughs> yeah. And and I'd always tease her about it, you know, and, and we'd have all we'd everybody'd have a good laugh. And then we were also a family that we used to sing in the car when we were going down the road, you know, and things like that. So wow, what a wonderful interpretation that I never considered. But you're absolutely right how powerful those uh memories are of of uh the people that we know singing and and yeah. uh wow that, that I'm gonna have to go back and listen to the song again now with a whole different set of ears because I uh, that really blows me away well to move on you know you you have a song entitled John Prine and we know John Prine did passed away not that long ago and your song to me is obviously it's a tribute to him Mm -hmm. Uh, what did John Prine mean to you as a singer songwriter and how did his work impact your work uh, John Prine, like I'm, I was definitely as very, very late to the John Prine party as a music appreciation person. I found him by way of another guy named Todd Snyder. And um, Todd Snyder is kind of a hippy dippy folk singer from Nashville, who I really love. I love how he mixes um, human truth and his beautiful perspective as a storyteller. And then he also brings in laughter like he can break your heart break your heart and make you laugh at the same time and Mm -hmm. I'm like how did Todd Snyder become Todd Snyder well you follow him down the rabbit hole John Prine John Prine is how Todd Snyder became uh, Todd Snyder and so it was by way of Todd Snyder that I found John Prine and he's got that he wields this 
he wields this masterful pen that again, uh, and uh, if you've listened to the record and hopefully anybody else who listens to the record, like my inspiration, the reason why I write songs is that fascination with the human condition, with human story and human emotions. Like some people, some people love like flowers and mountains and I just can't get into flowers and mountains, but I'm definitely into like the human story. So John Prine, I think is also into the human story. He also has this really wonderful conversational tone, which is crazy hard to do. He makes it seem effortless. Like it makes it seem like he just wrote this song backstage. He walked up and he sang it. It's, it feels effortless. And I have always wanted my language to sound conversational and effortless in the way that John Prine does. He also brings this playful spirit. He, he marries that playfulness of kind of making light of human life along with, I can break your heart at the same time, um, gravity. And that humor and gravity is just like a one-two punch. And like, it's that, yeah, he just marries the sweet and the bitter together so well mm-hmm. with kind of a wink of an eye that it's just draws you in at least for me it drew me in and I, mm-hmm. I really wanted to know more and hear more and live in that universe mm-hmm. a lot mm-hmm. and, and do you feel that that his approach this same sort of thing do you find that cropping up in your music or do you find that that's been uh, something that has impacted the way you write or or perform well, not perform. I mean, I think he's really good at performing. I wouldn't ever say that I can probably do it, do it like he does. <laughs> I, I relate to a lot of what he has done. And I think a lot of folk singers relate to him. I think a lot of folk singers in general, me included, are inspired by the fact that he was writing while delivering the mail. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of singer songwriters are Um, inspired by the fact that he wrote in obscurity for some time and that he just kept on being true to his writer's voice, kind of not paying attention to like the ladder of success, just continually showing up with an honest open heart. And kind of the rest is this beautiful legend also like of him being discovered. But that, that keeping the day job, that ordinary life, that life of an artist living alongside of clocking in and clocking out, I think that that's fascinating and and it speaks to the kind of work that he produced Mm -hmm. okay all right well let's shift gears and we really do shift gears with this next song but uh, (laughs) i think uh, well when i listen to your song dog like you (laughs) yeah is really a stylistic departure to my ears from what i've heard here previously on the album because dog like you has more of kind of a funky sort of groove to it, it okay. rather than say straight country or, or rock it's more right. almost funk and i i love the song because it's a great diss of a man <laughs> who has who has obviously gone wrong with the way he's treated a woman mm-hmm. and uh and uh so i i really love the song for that i also love whoever did it the dobro solo that's uh that's on the song that was zach smith 
oh, Zach did that. Well, pass along my kudos to him next time you communicate, because I thought the solo was really great. So were there stylistic elements of this song originally as you conceived them? Or was this something that grew and developed and modified and there were accretions added to the song in the studio? I mean, you you didn't go into the studio with a dog like you in the way that it came out. No. Yeah, I kind of suspected that. So um, Dog Like You is a great example of uh, Zach and Jesse hearing something that I just simply could not hear. Um, I brought, I brought the chords and the lyrics. I sent, we sang through it together and it was a pretty straightforward country song um, to start with. And they thought, and they asked me what I thought about funking it up a little bit. Okay. And this is, I mean, this points to what I really wanted to accomplish in this, in this record was that this, this driving desire to let the song like make sure that the songs become what they're supposed to become and this is a great example of one of those where I had the raw template and I needed another brain here to help really flesh this thing out and help it come to life and that's what Zach and Jesse brought to the table so it started out started out as a pretty straightforward country song um the backstory you're getting the exclusive uh tip here Craig is that um me and my sister-in-law challenged each other to try and write songs that Dolly Parton would write. Okay. And this was the song I wrote. And um, the reason why I loved it, the reason why I wanted, reason why I thought it had elements of Dolly Parton is that Dolly Parton has this amazing way of um, kind of falling for, falling for a man who she's attracted to and then maintaining this kind of feminine, and strength and weakness at the same time like um the idea that yeah she has a heart big enough to fall for some dreamy dreamboat and then see that she fell for a dreamy dreamboat and take the guy to task because like uh i think that's pretty a cool combo that i don't you don't hear a lot of those like i did like i was drawn in and now i can clearly see that i was drawn in it was nice while it lasted. And then I got my heart stomped on, like in a pretty matter of fact kind of way. So, so uh, anyways, I loved how it turned out. I mm-hmm. loved going on this musical journey and to tell you, so you're exactly right. I did not know where this musical journey would end when we walked into the studio with Dog Like You, but I love how it turned mm-hmm. out a lot. And I couldn't have done it without those guys. Well, see, the thing, you know, what, okay, as a listener, as one of your listeners, the whole, uh, the whole uh, enchilada, so to speak, of the song conjures up to me this idea of like a, a dog on the street, you know what I mean? Because it's kind of more of that funky sort of urban sound, right? So I'm kind of envisioning this dog metaphorically, you know, digging through the garbage, you know, in a back alley somewhere. And then of course, it's really a diss of, of a guy who's, who's been terrible to a woman. I mean, you know, and we use that dog metaphor. I mean, I think like, um, uh, you're nothing but a hound dog. 
yeah you know kind of the you know uh, same same sort of idea and mm -hmm. uh but uh that's what that to me see that it was the brilliance of how you fleshed out the song because you took some of the meaning of the song and enhanced it with that funky groove and with the other instrumental things that were were added to it so yeah. that's beautiful work in my thank opinion you, thank you in my opinion uh and you know and that's just the way it came across to me as a listener um well, you know, uh, I being an academic, I have to ask at least one academic type question because it's it. uh, it's in my contract that I made with myself. <laughs> right. Yeah, you yeah. know. So anyway, uh, you know, the ancient Greeks claimed philosophically that the purpose of tragedy in drama was to serve as an emotional catharsis for those witnessing the drama. Mm -hmm. one could experience the emotional pain of what they were witnessing on stage without having to bear the actual pain of what was being viewed on stage. So is the aesthetic purpose of your songs to provide an emotional cleansing for your listeners or maybe even yourself? Or are you only as other songwriters have done simply serving as an observer of cultural trends and making a personal commentary? Mm. And you could take a minute to think about it. There was a lot in that question. I dig it. I dig it. I dig it. Well, the first thought I had before you even finished the question was that, um, yeah, a drama serving for as emotional catharsis for the audience. Mm -hmm. Who's my first audience? Me. Mm -hmm. Okay. Like most of the time when I'm writing, I'm writing from a place of what do I need to hear? Like what, what's something I'm curious about or wanting to tell the truth about? So that first thing is I'm the first audience. Mm -hmm. The second thing is I have a real strong desire and kind of um, just like gospel truth that I have to tell the truth. It's got to be the truth. And so it's going to be, maybe it'll be truth that busts me up. Maybe it'll be truth that busts the audience up. Um, a lot of times I'm not thinking about my audience when I'm creating work. I'm thinking about me. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That third thing, the third thing, and, and it comes and goes, is that sometimes I think, especially in a world, and you probably are, are wrestling with this world yourself as a music lover, is that there's just so much content. Like, there's so much content that in some ways music has devalued itself i don't know because robots make it now you know what i mean like <laughs> sure and and so one of the things i have i think very strongly about is that like the world doesn't have time for another song like songs should blow up buildings <laughs> like they need to serve a purpose that is more than just and i believe that there are songs for every occasion and that songs serve have different jobs but i feel called as a songwriter to shake shake stuff up like shake either shake the human heart up shake a listener up and mostly shake myself up mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 
So I'm interested in telling the truth and shaking stuff up. I'm definitely not interested in commentary. I'm interested in really being truthful about human condition. And as I've grown as a songwriter, I could probably say that I started out as a pretty, you know, like confessional writing my diary kind of lyric writer type of deal. Mm -hmm. And as I've grown as an artist, now what I'm interested in is that same human condition truth. And yet, like, for example, Dog Like You, I have never been wronged by a romantic lover so that I feel like I, my whole world has fallen apart. But I have felt, I have felt betrayal and I have felt this feeling of not, like all of a sudden waking up and what you thought was true is not true. Mm-hmm. And so I feel called to take that human experience of betrayal and, and the realization that I may have been living under a false pretense and like turning up the dial and taking it to the nth degree in order that I can create a story that has truthfulness in it. It's not necessarily my own truth, but I can definitely believe that it's a human truth that people have lived, me, me, myself included. Mm-hmm. And then I maybe take my artistic palette out and kind of paint something from that. Gah, that feels like a gut punch. Like, it feel, like what is a gut mm-hmm. punch about? Mm-hmm. And where do people live that gut punch? That, that answer well, your question? you know, actually it does. And what it, but what it also did hope is it brought to mind a couple of things I want, I want to share with you because you've inspired me to think about these things Please. again. When I was in school to learn how to, you know, basically learn how to be a teacher. Mm-hmm. I remember a professor uh, telling us, many of you in this room decided to become educators because you had some sort of notion that you were going to save the world. Mm. I'm here to tell you that you cannot save the world, Mm. but you can save a few people. You can Mm. save one or two, right? Mm. And, and that there's nothing wrong with that because you can't reach everyone. Mm -hmm. Um, The other is a story about a man walking along a beach And the beach is covered with starfish that have just Mm. washed up. And as he's walking along, he's picking up a starfish and throwing it back in the water because if they don't go back in the water, they'll die. Mm. And and as he's there, another person comes along and says, well, what are you you doing? He says, well, if I don't throw the starfish back, they'll die. And the other person says, but there's thousands of them. How do you feel like you can make a difference? And he picked up another starfish and threw it in and said, made a difference to that one. Yeah. And I yeah. think, and I think that you're when you talk about you're right about music. I mean, I forget where I read, you know, something to the effect of every day, ten thousand new websites devoted to new musical artists go up on the internet. Yeah. And so, in a sense, we're we're over the top in terms of what's out there, what's available. And, 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 and maybe that has, as you put it in a way, maybe devalued things somewhat, but the key element is that it still is going to have value to someone or some ones. Yes. And that's why, and that's why you keep doing what you're doing. Why I keep doing what I'm doing. Yeah. I mean, uh, there's, there's that thought that, um, you know, in songwriters, because I'm a songwriter first, like straight up, I'm in, I'm in right. love with writing songs. Some people will say, uh, you know, they'll, 
they'll hear Dylan for the first time or for the millionth time and they'll hang up songwriting and they'll be like, how could I possibly do something that that's mm -hmm. beyond Dylan? And my thought is constantly like, Dylan doesn't get the job done for everybody. Like mm -hmm. there's somebody out there that needs you to have the guts to write the song that will save their life. Like I was having a conversation about this very thing a couple of weeks ago with another songwriter, Peter Himmelman. And he was saying, you know, us songwriters, like musicians and performers, we have this weird, this weird drive to be heard. Like it's almost, it's a little unhealthy maybe, but we've been given this weird gift to want to go in a room where lights go down, the spotlight comes up and you're the only one there. And we are driven by it to like hear our own voice, like to heal our own shit, sorry, stuff. And to try to get this feeling alleviated, right? Mm -hmm. Well, one of the biggest fears that most people have is the fear of public speaking and the fear of going up in front of a room. And so what we actually need to do is use this kind of possibly pathological desire to get crave attention and use it to be that, like you said, that mouthpiece to say the things an audience can't say, like to bear witness to the human pain that we share together and to be that go between in order to let someone feel less alone. Oh, that's, that's beautifully put. Yes. Yes. I, yeah, yeah. I think I agree, you know, because I, I don't think about it anymore because, mm. you know, I, I spent, right. I spent 30 years speaking in front of groups, right. Yeah. Lecturing, yeah. lecturing college classes and, and it never, never, you know, but, and so it's always kind of foreign to me again, when I, when I hear about that, that next to death, mm -hmm. what people fear the most is speaking in it's, public. I know let right. alone, let alone, you think about this as an artist, here you are taking your creation, your, you know, your baby, so to speak, musically speaking, and putting it on display in public, and then having to deal with the approval or disapproval of the audience. Right. And that is challenging. And not everybody can do that. And that, you know, that's whenever I used to work with uh, young uh, musicians, like I'd go and clinic a, a band uh, at a school, and I would tell, tell the kids, I would say, always remember that you have a gift. You may not think you have a gift, but you have a gift because not everyone can do what we do. Right. And you have a responsibility to share that gift, mm -hmm. uh, you know, when you, when you can. So, yeah. I anyway. mean, final thought, I know we're going probably long on this question. Eh, it's all right. But Mary Gaucher. Oh, sure. Mary Gaucher teaches a lot of songwriting classes and I've been blessed enough to be in her songwriting workshops. And she reminds us all the time. She goes, let me tell you something. Let me remind you, you are in the service industry. Like your job is to get up there, get out of the way and help people live their life or have help people find a place of like, yeah, the alleviation of human suffering. Yeah. And you know, Mary Gaucher, I love her. She's, she's I amazing. love her music and, you know, talk about telling stories about, you know, well, dark subjects in many cases, yeah. but I mean, tell the truth about some of, oh, some of those parts of society we never see. 
yeah but excellent songwriter i've i i in fact maybe i'll take a shot at asking her to be a guest sometime oh, <laughs> totally. you know, what's, what's the worst thing could happen she could just say, could no. say no i know yeah. right yeah what the heck you know so that's that's great well uh, hope you've you've mentioned uh, a few people but uh, who were really your models for your vocal style and quality who who did you listen to coming up that you feel like maybe you have uh not copied, that's not the right word, right. but have uh, gleaned uh, from and uh, towards developing your own vocal style? That's a great question. You know, when as a kid, you know, you listen to what your folks listen to. So, you know, my dad, my dad loved Aretha Franklin and Ray Charles and Mahalia Jackson and Paul Simon and Simon and Garfunkel and the mamas and the papas, um, like Mama Cass, I think mm-hmm. was probably one of the first voices that I, I pretty much fell in love with. But um, besides that, my backstory is that my music education was really in the classical world for my youth and young adulthood and somewhat after college. So I was doing voice and a, I was a lyric soprano from 17 until I mm. was 25. And I was interested in, you know, yeah, singing art songs and being in opera productions and being in classical productions with soloists um, and in choral arrangements and stuff. So mm-hmm. a lot of my formational singing was not in this bent. Now, granted, I was still using my voice, but really I was doing a lot of choral and classical soloist training and singing. And Mm -hmm. that was most of my young adult life. It wasn't until I discovered the world of songwriters, like when I was kind of late, like 25 or something, that I was opened up into the world of singer songwriters who I love. And I always point back to Daryl Scott and I I know he's a male vocalist, but Mm -hmm. I was trying to copy his vocal style. Mm -hmm. I mean, Mm -hmm. I just think the guy rules, right? Um, And then like Linda Ronstadt, Patty Griffin, um, you know, uh, some of those bigger voices, that's another interesting thing is as an earlier on in my career, I was really informed by the idea that these songwriters these songwriters were keeping it pretty small in order to make sure that the words got out okay. Mm-hmm. And I spent a lot of years like bringing my song, my voice down to size. Like all I could think of was my voice is too big. It's gotta be smaller. It's gotta be smaller. It's gotta be more intimate, right? It's like, it's gotta be more emotions, less singing. That was another thing that I rediscovered in making Sweetheart Land was what if I just sang the way I wanted to (laughs) and as as big as I wanted to, like in all of my previous recordings, I did not really allow my voice to really be as big as it possibly could be. Mm -hmm. And this was a lot of fun to kind of let it, let it go. And in live shows, I have a much bigger voice, but in all of my recording sessions, I'm like, it's gotta be Mm -hmm. sensitive. Mm -hmm. And if Mm -hmm. it's too big, it won't be sensitive. So yeah, all that classical training, though, probably helps you develop some good chops. 
uh, as far as your really voice did. is concerned. I mean, it gave you a good foundation to be, to sing more in a, in a popular style. Yeah. yeah, it was a great, it was, it's interesting to think that the sound sounds very different, but the techniques and the muscles and the, the mechanics of singing mm -hmm. that I learned in the classical world are mm -hmm. huge, huge mm -hmm. for helping me sing today. Yeah. Yeah. I, I have a, my wife is a classically trained singer. Okay. And, oh yeah. She's a, she's very much a, but she's, she's not so much opera as she is art song. Yeah. And she, uh, which she has done beautifully and uh, she's uh, so, yeah, I've heard a lot of what you're talking about her talk about as far as the, the muscles and the, and the actual mechanics yeah. And, and so on. So that's, that's good to know. I'm curious to know about the music scene in your neck of the woods, hmm. especially pre-COVID-19. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I understand you're from a, you know, small town in Nebraska. And, uh, but uh, uh, there's got to be some kind of typical venues that you've done in and around uh, where you live and other places where you've toured. I'd be interested in, my audience would be interested in knowing more about these. Yeah, sure. So in Nebraska, um, when I'm when I'm close to home, I'm very first of all, I'm very lucky to one of my very first places that I got to play as an opener and then um, as a main stage act was um, a place in Hastings, Nebraska. They have had a they have had a listening room concert series there for over 20 years and have brought in some amazing singer songwriters and mm -hmm. built a reputation of being a real, a real magnet for great music in Hastings, Nebraska. It was first called the listening room and then it turned into the Lark. And um, first I was a fan who went to shows there and then I was allowed to open and then I was allowed to play the ship, play the stage. And that was a huge, learning place and community for me oh, we're very lucky and you know in nebraska and i'm sure wisconsin's same place that the the longer you live in a place you start hearing especially if you're a music fan about house concert series mm -hmm. so nebraska has about five or six really well-known established house concerts that bring touring artists from all over the united states through our neck of the woods oh. and and that kind of uh that kind of small, small tour route has brought us amazing people from all over the United States. Um, but, and then also, uh, you know, you live in a small town, here's what's cool is you can kind of create whatever you want. So then I started producing my own series back in 2015, 2016. Um, I figured if I wanted to hear the music that I really wanted to hear and have my friends come and come through and play shows, well, then I was going to have to find a stage and I was going to have to start a series. So I started a series on my own and, um, you know, got my feet wet in the world of hosting house concerts. So that was really fun to be able to do that. And it closed down because of COVID that <laughs> kind of abruptly ended our concert series. Mm -hmm. It'll come back. Maybe who knows? I don't know. I haven't decided yet. Yeah. Um, I have a very dear friend up in the Chicago area, Emily White, and a dear friend in Door County, Katie Dahl. And uh, the three of us have been very happy to tour the upper Midwest together for a lot of springs. So I've been lucky to play in Milwaukee and Madison and up in Door County and Chicago area and uh, 
Michigan with those girls. And that's been really fun. Mm -hmm. And I love going West. My furthest West I usually go is Swallow Hill in Denver. And I've loved playing Swallow Hill. It's kind of a historic iconic place that, that folk singers love to play. And then in St. Louis, I love to go to St. Louis. And then about every year I had been going to do a house concert in the New York area, but mm. I haven't done that in the last couple of years. Sure, sure. Those are kind of my meat and potato markets. Well, that's great. Well, I will definitely, of course, now that I've met you and know all about you, I'll be watching next time you come to the Milwaukee area and I'll be there yeah, in please. your audience. Uh, you know, so that'll be, that'd be awesome. Well, aside from the new album, how have you been keeping mentally and musically active uh, during the pandemic because everything's been closed down? Big time. So a lot of songwriters, and maybe you've seen this, Craig, a lot of songwriters shifted to online live stream concerts, right? Mm -hmm. I did it a little bit, but then I, I really haven't been very regular. It, for some reason, didn't feel like the right fit. However, like I said, I'm a songwriter first, and a friend of mine in San Francisco, Bob Hillman, put together a group of songwriters and we have been meeting every Monday since a year ago, April. Mm. And we've been writing new material every week. Wow. Give or take a few, you know, when you mm -hmm. get mm -hmm. or something. But so I've been writing really steadily thanks to this Monday night songwriters group. We've been meeting up and sharing songs and talking about the work. And it has, it has been a real, salvation and a real inspiration to to be in company with some amazing songwriters on that night well that really sort of answers another one of my questions because i was yeah. going to ask you if you're currently writing obviously you are yeah. uh can you give us a glimpse into any of these songs that you've written are they going to show up on your next album uh are you know what kinds of things have you been writing oh man you know, it's been, it's been quite a, it's been quite a year. I don't know if you know this, Craig, but a lot has been weird in the United States in the past year. Yes, and, I've noticed. <laughs> I don't know if you noticed, but yeah. <laughs> and it has been, I mean, it's kind of a writer's dream come true. If you want a flavor of the week for crisis and disaster, well, then 2020 was your year. Anyway, um, it has been fun to explore alternative um, themes that I hadn't pre previously. For example, I'm not a protest writer. I'm not a political songwriter, but heck, if it's like the world's begging you to write a protest song or a political song, I had an opportunity to try it. That's what's great about weekly songwriting group is sky's the limit. It really is an experimental place where you get to try to, to do things that you've never done before. And that's how mm -hmm. I really used it. Mm -hmm. So it's mm -hmm. been real an exploration. It's been an expansion of kind of um, my melodic universe. And I am talking with a future producer right now about putting together the next collection of songs. Um, Wonderful. From this from this um, experiment this year. And, and mm -hmm. I'm really excited about it. So do you keep a, like a sketchbook of ideas? So yes and no. Okay. Uh, the yes is yes. I have notebook after notebook of discarded partially written songs. Okay, the lyrics. Question, 
Oh yeah. The question yeah. is, Craig, will I ever crack them open again to see what's in there? Mm -hmm. Jury's still out. I have learned in my process, I rarely go back to old work. Mm. Rarely. Hmm. So what I think, and, and I, and like this year, I've been writing a song a week previously. Um, this is your podcast. I've also hosted a podcast with my uh, sister-in-law, Emily, where we wrote a song a week called Prompt Queens and we wrote from prompts. Yes. Um, and then two, a year. So I've had at least three years where I have written a song a week. So I have a lot of experience with writing a lot. And what has it's told me is I would much rather be in my thought bank of this moment than to go back mm. and find something old. So you're kind of a, a stream of consciousness, spur of the moment. This is what's tickling my imagination right now kind of approach. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. And, and I think that for me, especially like even on this record, when I hear the songs played back, I have a good recollection of how the studio went, but really when I think about the song, I have a clear, clear recollection of the day I wrote that song. Wow. So they almost, they're like timestamps. Wow, that is amazing. That's yeah. great. Well, you know, that's one of the things, uh, these kinds of questions that I'm asking you, I, I really, I ask of most every singer-songwriter I interview because I am intrigued mm -hmm. by the creative process and how different people respond to their inspiration and how they, they flesh things out, you know, and there are some who are like daily journal writers and then they go back and use that material as inspiration for songs right and there are those that i have one friend of mine here in the milwaukee area who's a singer songwriter and she gets uh, most of her inspiration while she's vacuuming mm -hmm. <laughs> you know it's good so everybody's different you know and that's everybody's what i different. and that's what i really find uh intriguing about the whole creative process well um now that we're, uh, you know, kind of still in that limbo, are you, are you currently making any plans? Uh, have anything on the drawing board for any uh, touring once it's safe to go out again? Yes, I am slowly starting to add some dates to my calendar. When I think about my future as a touring artist, I don't see myself going out as much as I have in the past. Okay. Um, you know, we talk about domestic stuff. You know, my sons are all in high school right now. I have a senior who's graduating in May. Mm. And, um, you know, you get to this place that everybody says you're going to get to when you're raising kids. And they say it goes by so fast. And I am living the experience of it going by so fast. And I was on the road for a lot of those years, not, not heavily, I mean, not like 200 days a year or anything, but enough to have missed out on some stuff. Sure. And now as I see the, the road coming to an end, I think I, I'd kind of like to just be here and bear witness sure. to this. Yeah, that's great. Well, Hope, is there anything else you would like to add or tell my audience? Oh man, there's so much I want to tell them, Craig, because you know me, I love, I love a stage. That's why I do what I do. Um, but I think what I would love to tell the audience is um, that 
the invitation to create goes way back in human history beyond the time of record deals and social media and notoriety, that it's something built into each and every one of us, um, then that's not an accident and it's not to be ignored or shelved because practical matters are more important and should take up your time. Um, in fact, a lot of us may have been given messages about our create, creative aptitude early on in our life that have kept us from exploring how we would like to express our existence here on earth. And I would just encourage everyone who's listening and myself included that, um, that it's not a mistake that you're inspired to create and that the more we as adults can model creativity and artistry in everyday life, the more, the fuller our lives will be. And also we'll be modeling that permission for anybody else who's watching, whether that's our children, our grandchildren, our neighbors. Mm -hmm. And that's the kind of thing that can change the world. Very good. I think that's excellent advice. And I couldn't agree with you more heartily. I think that's it's really awesome. important. I do too. I think creativity and creative thinking and positivity and having a growth mindset, yeah. you know, I mean, uh, you know, always looking to improve. Uh, I think those are excellent uh, pieces of wisdom for, for all of us to know. Mm -hmm. Well, Hope, I want to thank you for taking time to talk with me today. And uh, I, you know, all the best to you uh, for what I'm sure is going to be continued success in your musical future. Well, thank you. It's been my pleasure to talk to you today. This was really fun. Yes, I enjoyed it a lot. Me too. All right. Take care, Hope. Thanks, Craig. You too. Mm -hmm. Bye now. Bye. My discovery composer of the week is the late medieval, early Renaissance, Franco-Flemish master, Hugo de Lantins, who flourished from 1420 to 1430. His works appear in the same manuscripts as those of Arnold de Lantins. Hugo de Lantins was active in Italy as evidenced by his motet Christus Vincit, written in praise of the doge Francesco Foscari of Venice. Also his Bellata, Tra Quante Regioni, written in praise of Sparta, the Eastern Roman Empire, and Cleofe Malatesta, who married the Prince of Sparta in 1421. Hugo de Lantins may have had a close, albeit short, association with another noted Franco-Flemish composer, Guillaume Dufay, as they share common dedications in their motets to St. Nicholas of Bari. Imitation not only distinguishes the work of Hugo de Lantins from that of Arnold, de Lentines, but also appears more consistently in his work than that of any other composer of the time. The All Music Guide 
lists 13 recordings of music by Hugo Delantines. Included in my show notes is a link to a performance of Chanter de Skei by Hugo Delantines, performed by the early music group Alchemy. And I have provided uh, a link to the webpage for Alchemy for those of you that might be interested in learning more about them. Well, that wraps episode number 25. My show notes, along with links to artist websites, recording label websites, YouTube videos of artists' performances, are all posted on my Facebook page, The Musical Universe of Professor Hurst. Next week, I will be interviewing award-winning blues vocalist and harmonica player, John Namath. Upcoming interviews will include one all the way from Italy with indie folk country rock singer-songwriter, Vanessa Peters. Also upcoming, Kate Coleman, lead singer and songwriter for the band Run Katie Run jazz vocalist and trombonist Aubrey Logan, and country artist John Tyler Wiley of John Tyler Wiley and his Virginia Choir. So don't touch that dial and stay tuned. If you have questions, comments, or a suggestion of an artist, composer, or musical style for me to consider, you may email me at h-u-r-s-t-c at u-w-m dot e-d-u. So, until next time, this is Professor Craig W. Hurst and Carmel the Wonder Dog signing off from the musical universe of Professor Hurst. Have a great day.